Good morning, Nava family. Hope you're well. Thank you for all who gave Julie and I birthday wishes and blessings on our 40th. 40's feeling pretty good. I'm thankful to be here. <laughs> thankful that I'm still here. Um, I am so excited that next week we get to come back together, 10.30 in the morning at Swope Park again, same place we were for our 15 year. I'm excited to be together, to worship Jesus together, uh, and just be the church. Um, will you pray with me as we start this morning? Jesus, we love you. We believe you're the hope for all of humanity, for all of our flourishing. We want to see you again and be made like you in love. You are our vision. Lord, would you direct my words and my thoughts and would you open up your word to us today and open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Nava, we are learning what it means to be formed by and to follow Jesus together in all of life in these times of pressure and shaking. And we talked about uh, last week, that we will either be shaped by Jesus and formed by him or shaped by the culture and the bombardment of what is happening around us. And I want to bless uh, every one of us. We have not stopped meeting together in our home churches. We've devoted ourselves to fellowship. We've opened the word and devoted ourselves to living it, to breaking bread, to being in God's presence in prayer. And over time, we are being formed by Jesus together. Well done. This is the life he has called us to. This, uh, as I said last week, these are two messages that I'm unfolding about how we intentionally pursue formation in Jesus and how we navigate the pressure and polarization in America right now, specifically related to this tense imminent election and political season and the days that will follow. Um, I want to encourage you, if you weren't able to listen to the first message, to go back and do that. That'll fill out some of what I'm going to share today, but I will give a recap for those of you who weren't able to listen to that. Uh, in the first message, Kingdom Before Politics, we looked at the complex first century context that Jesus and his disciples lived in the context that had Roman power and their political vision of what human flourishing would look like for peace and security and prosperity through the promise of their way, the Roman way. And the Jewish expectation, the nationalistic expectation for a human king to come and throw off the oppressors and bring everything that they longed for. And we peered together into the central words of Jesus in which he opened up his ministry and the central vision he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Seek first the kingdom, this kingdom that can't be shaken. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said these words, but what did he mean in such a complex uh, time? He was saying, give up your idea, your vision, your version of how peace and security and human flourishing will happen. I am the fulfillment. 
of that vision. Change your mind about how that will come and live in me. Follow me as the king. I am everything that you long for. I talked about those five aims in these two messages, and the first message was just unfolding the first two aims. Again, the first one, recentering Jesus and the kingdom as our hope for human flourishing, that Jesus created us and sustains us, and Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we long for. And our hope, placed in any other human system or solution, ultimately, before Jesus, is idolatry and will leave us empty and broken and damaged. Secondly, we looked at reclaiming our primary identity in Jesus as opposed to any other identity, specifically in partisan politics. And we reminded ourselves we're followers of Jesus. We're kingdom citizens first. We're members of Jesus's own body that we have to differentiate ourselves from every other identity and reclaim Jesus as our primary identity. So that was the first message, really looking at those first two. This message, I said I would open up the next three points. And so I'll just rehearse those again. Recommitting to love and humility, reframing the narrative around Jesus, and representing Jesus as kingdom peacemakers rather than being partisans in the culture. So I'll just walk through those in a little bit more detail, but really as we unfold the Sermon on the Mount, I'm hoping that the words of Jesus will accomplish these three points for us. Recommitting to love and humility. I couldn't think of anything more important than re-upping, recommitting to love. I mean, it's what we it's what we decided to do and be when we said we would follow Jesus, but right now is the time that we need to decide again. We will love our brothers and sisters and even our political enemies as the highest value and aim at all cost. Love is what we commit to. We will hold strong convictions, but with equally strong compassion, refusing to break fellowship over disagreement, refusing to judge or dehumanize because of our convictions, overcoming the cancel culture where if we disagree with a little bit, we cancel the whole person or perspective and acknowledging that our political preference comes from how we have experienced life and the interests that we hold and learning to value and prefer others' interests before our own. Letting Jesus change us in any place is what love and humility looks like. And no one left a conversation with Jesus unchallenged or unloved. We recommit to love and humility. The fourth was reframing the narrative around Jesus in the middle of navigating a complex cultural moment. We believe Jesus is the way through the complexity and confusion of this cultural moment. We're called to hold a greater narrative and kingdom frame that can challenge and reform any place in the world that doesn't conform to his image, specifically in our two-party system. We must not create a version of faith that merely supports or conforms to our chosen party, but rather submit ourselves to Jesus and his revolutionary teaching that will challenge policies on both sides. Jesus can't be forced fit into either political 
platform. Jesus teaches us how to live and think about every issue of life. We reframe the narrative around Jesus and his words, and we'll look at his words today. And fifth, uh, representing Jesus as kingdom peacemakers, not partisans. We are a prophetic people. That is who the church is called to be, to put on display Jesus as salt and light to the world that's waiting and watching for how will we do it? How will we engage in the public square? To show forth Jesus as humanity's hope for flourishing and fulfillment, as I said earlier, rather than pinning our hopes to the partisan pipeline or delivery system for policies and promises. We want a church with diverse political beliefs and thoughts and convictions, but more importantly, Nava, it's how we do this that will put Jesus on display, that we deeply disagree on some things, but we can honor and value one another and show the world we are disciples by our love. And those are the five points that we want to open, uh, specifically the last three. I close the first message with the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the tale of two houses that Jesus told us. There was a wise man who built his house on a rock, And there was a foolish man who built his house on the sinking sand. The rains came, the floods rose, the winds beat against the house. One house, the foolish man's house on the sinking sand, crashed the ground. The wise man's house remained. And we talked about, is our house on the lordship of Jesus, or is it on the sinking sand of self-interest, partisan politics, or any other thing? And we looked at a bit of a checklist that would help us identify is, was Jesus our hope for flourishing? Is Jesus our identity? But I want to go a little bit deeper with Jesus. Jesus takes us a step further, and I want to go straight back to Jesus's words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven or the reign and rule of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And down to verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I mean, we can, the first message is saying, Jesus, your Lord, People here came to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, if I am Lord, it will be shown by your life. The message today is us not just looking at that checklist, but going to the words of Jesus and saying, have we put them into practice? The the foundation is revealed What we practice is revealed under pressure. And Jesus is asking us, have we put his words into practice? The the words of his kingdom are to be practiced. I'm thankful that it's practice because um, I don't know about you, but practice is required in every area of life. I don't always like practicing. And it's often in the places that I'm not good at something that I have to put them into practice and grow over time. And even when I become good at them, I constantly have to practice. And Jesus is inviting us, have we lived his words? That will show us where our house is built. 
Have we practiced his words under pressure? This season of political and cultural pressure is revealing, are we putting the words of God into practice? Statistically and sadly, the church in almost every area of life looks just like the world. Have we said he's Lord and said we've built our house upon the rock, but just decorated the house with Christian paraphernalia and actually it's upon the sinking sand? Well, as we go through the words of Jesus, specifically the Beatitudes, we are going to, we are going to be shown, are we practicing the words of Jesus? And the invitation is to do just that, to put them into practice. This is how we will know. Now, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, you have to go back to the beginning of the sermon in Matthew 4 and then right into the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And when we hear the word Sermon on the Mount, we might think, you know, a pastor with a pulpit and there's people in the building and and the pews. And obviously we know it's not that. It says the Sermon on the Mount. But we still have this kind of domesticated version of Jesus is very... um, you know, calm and giving these words. But when you look at the context of the sermon, it says that crowds were coming from the Decapolis and Galilee and Judea. I mean, this is a politically charged moment with diverse ideologies and cultures and peoples from all over the place. They are desperate. They, it says, are riddled with disease. There's those who are demonized. They're People who are looking for something. And instead of seeing Jesus as a a pastor with a a pulpit, can we see this revolutionary on a rugged hillside? What he's announcing here in the sermon is this man who's announcing a revolution to liberate humanity. He's announcing his vision. He's announcing what it will look like to live in the kingdom of God of God to people who are desperate and looking for him. I mean, this is where we're at right now in culture. These words apply just as much today as they ever did 2,000 years ago, and it's profound. He uses this word to start, and the word is blessed. Well, I mean, obviously that I've said it in other sermons, you know, hashtag blessed can be such a trivial thing. We've, we've taken this word and made it something Jesus didn't intend What did he mean by this word? The Greek word is makarios. And, um, you know, going back into the original languages, the Greeks would characterize this word with this idea of transcendent happiness or bliss, almost a word where if you could get beyond the problems, have enough insulated wealth um, to get yourself isolated, you could have the blessed life or They even use the word of the bliss of the dead. They're they're done with the troubles of this world. Um, They used it as a term for their Greek gods. They were the blessed ones who were transcendent in bliss and happiness. The Hebrews, though, used this word in, in a deeper sense. It was the deep life of joy and peace, of well being. That is what they meant by this. Now, Jesus is going to take up this word and radically redefine what is abundant life. To use maybe a popular term today, the good life. What is the good life and who is it for? Who gets to enter into it? 
Now, if you look around the culture, every one of us wants the good life. And that's exactly what politicians are promising us in their political platforms, peace, security. What is the good life? Now, as we start into the Beatitudes, Jesus is going to announce his vision for the good life, the abundant life that we were created for. He's going to open up the core tenets of the rule and reign of God. That word kingdom begins the Beatitudes and it ends the Beatitudes. It frames the whole thing. What does it look like to live under the reign and rule of God? In other words, if God was in charge on earth, if his way and his will was happening, what would it look like on earth? And who gets to live in that and enter into that? And Jesus is going to announce these things in these eight profound statements. I mean, but you can imagine if Jesus was to stand in our political debates like we heard in the last week and announce this platform of the good life. I mean, at first it may sound okay, but as he begins to say, you know, man, the good life, the blessed life is those who, who are really meek, you know, who, who weep over things, who, who seek to make peace. After a while, you could see people going, that's just not practical. How is that going to work? You see, he's announcing something just as radical today. These aren't the things we prize as humanity today. He was flipping everything they knew, how the good life would manifest, what abundant life would look like, and turning it on its head and radically reframing, re-envisioning what that would look like. What does it look like to align with his rule and reign? Those who practice these words are those who build their life on the rock. My friend Aaron White, who's written a brilliant book on the Sermon on the Mount recently, he interprets that word blessed, and I'm going to use this throughout, as sharing in the life of Christ. Sharing in the life of Christ are the poor in spirit. Sharing in the life of Christ are the pure in heart. Sharing in the life of Christ are the peacemakers. And this helps us to understand, to get into, we are sharing in the abundant life of God. This is who this is for, and this is what we want to look at in terms of these words that will absolutely test our hearts in the middle of the tense pressure of the political climate. So these are radical. Are you ready? Here we go. Sharing in the life of Christ are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is that word, poor in spirit? What is the idea of that? The idea is of desperate dependency. Sharing in the life of Christ are those who are desperately dependent. It's the word for beggar, actually, or spiritually bankrupt. I remember my friend Aaron that I just uh, mentioned coming into a meeting where those who were struggling to overcome addiction to abuse on substances, and he said to them, as they began to confess transparently their need for God, he said, you are blessed. And they kind of all looked at him and he said, no, no, this is where everyone needs to come. You've just been able to get there. Desperate for God. That is the starting place of entering in to the kingdom of God. This is the beginning of the good life. 
Humility is irresistible to heaven. It says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Heaven's favor and goodness is attracted to those who do not depend on themselves, but are desperate for God. I mean, we've talked a lot about humility. Remember, we're called the sheep. I mean, this is sort of, of all the things God could have used, it's kind of a demeaning term, like, They can't provide for themselves. They don't have any mechanism to protect themselves from predators. They don't know how to go and get their own food. They don't know how to lead themselves. They don't know when to rest. They're not good on their own. I mean, this is how God, he he describes us. I mean, have you received your sheepiness, your, your weakness, your desperation for God? This is what's true about us, but we try to have self-strength and self-will and make our way in the world. But it says we cannot even participate in the kingdom of God unless we acknowledge desperation for God. I mean, think about this political season. Are we engaging in politics and life on our own? Or are we desperate for God? way in this world. And I'm not just talking about desperate to find out who to vote for. I'm talking about in all of life, is he helping us understand how to make sense of it? Are we throwing everything we are on him? We're beggars spiritually, but we're beloved. We're desperate, but we're delighted in. Who we vote for is not everything. How we live desperate for God is everything. And the scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount says it's reflected in if we pray. Are we asking? Are we seeking? Are we knocking? The good news is he's a father who will help us, who's given us the Holy Spirit in our desperation. The kingdom is for those who are clinging to God, who are desperate for God, and it's often revealed, and if we're seeking him or not seeking him, the good news is Jesus wants to help us in this political season as we are desperate for him. Again, it's revealed in our daily prayer We're also going to be praying together as a people. October 24th, you can join the city and pray KC uh, at 5 p.m. Go to pray KC to find out there's going to be prayer hubs crying out for mercy in this political season all across the city. We're going to have a Nava prayer week November 1st through the 7th where we're seeking God again. But I'm talking about every day are we desperate for God. The kingdom is for those who are poor in spirit. Every one of these lines is a meditation that can take us for the rest of our life. I'm just scratching the surface. Let's go to the next one. Those who share in the life of God are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Will we weep with the king? We've received the king in poverty of spirit. Will we care about what he cares about, weep about what he weeps? There's so much to grieve right now, Nava. We are tearing one another apart in this nation. We are tearing one another apart in the church, I wanna ask us, are we grieved by what doesn't reflect the kingdom in our own lives and in our society and in the church? The invitation is to mourn. And if we don't mourn, we will miss the blessing of the good life. We will miss the treasure of the presence of God. A test of the kingdom in our character is if we are able to mourn with those who we disagree with simply because they are hurting, not because they are right. 
Because they're in pain, can we mourn with them? This is a test in the kingdom. It's the place we're invited to share in the kingdom. A story from the last election, 2016, the day after that election, city leaders gathered in the city. And as we were walking in, it was a very diverse group of leaders. African-American brothers and sisters were coming in the door and some of the white brothers and sisters were literally high-fiving and saying, it's the greatest miracle we've seen. Trump has been elected. It's a miracle of God. Whatever you think about that, what was heard and felt by those who are in the African-American culture, they walked into the room and I saw one brother literally put his head in his hands and I walked over to him and I asked him, are you okay? Because I, I saw the interaction. And he said, I don't know how I'm gonna make it through this weekend if that's where my brothers and sisters are. Like I just woke up to the worst nightmare. Again, whether you agree or disagree with that, he was in such deep pain. And so we paused the agenda of the retreat and we circled up and we allowed those who felt they had lost in life so deeply, not just lost in election, but lost in life to share their stories of pain. I remember as so many had tears around the circle and begin to encounter God. And I realized it wasn't about being right or who won or lost. The kingdom comes when we mourn with one another. In the days after the election, no matter who wins, someone's going to be sad and grieved and mourning. The test will be, will we mourn together whatever is appropriate to mourn and grieve what is happening in our society? The kingdom and the comfort of God is for those who mourn. Those who share in the life of Christ are meek. They will inherit the earth. We may be tempted in the world system or even in the church to grab or grasp for power, to push our perspective or position, to be aggressive or even coercive like the world. But Jesus's way is completely different. Those who share in the life of Christ, it says, are meek. That word means power under restraint. It means gentleness. It says that they will inherit the earth. Think about that. Instead of grabbing for power, pushing our agenda in this political season, what if we could prefer our brother? What if we were under submission to Jesus's way and will and we could inherit the earth rather than grab it? That's what the sons and daughters of the kingdom are called to do, to inherit. The question of meekness is, are we marked by meekness and a gentle spirit in our engagement with those who have different ideas than us politically? How are we interacting? Is it humble and is it meek? Well, those who are meek will inherit the earth here and ultimately. And so we're invited into the good life of meekness. The next one is those who share in the life of Christ are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. What a vision of the kingdom. It speaks to hunger and thirst. This is the deep desire in humanity for things to be set right personally and together. We have this desire and it says only those who find it in Jesus will have it satisfied. The word righteousness here carries simultaneously this personal dimension to be made right 
and moral rightness, but also that his rightness would be for everyone, that justice would happen in the earth. Now, in our political views as believers, we are arguing back and forth some about who really cares about righteousness and moral order, who really cares about justice and care for the poor. And we see these things playing out in these platforms and we are arguing back and forth about how these can be fulfilled and delivered. In a two-party system, these are mutually exclusive. And we find ourselves feeling we have to compromise by voting for one or the other and not finding our desire met for righteousness or justice in either party platform. Here's the reality for believers. Righteousness and justice is satisfied and effortlessly held together in Jesus. In Jesus, we don't have to compromise. We don't have to choose between one or the other like our two-party system. Jesus satisfies personal and collective righteousness and justice. He is the only one that can fulfill it. We are marked by this desire for righteousness and justice, and he alone can meet it in us. If you find yourself arguing over that in the political landscape, replace your hope in Jesus for these things to happen. Sharing in the life of Christ are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Again, I think this could be one of the greatest challenges of all. Our choice is judgment or mercy. In our pursuit of what is right, personally and corporately, and what is just, do we love mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve, but instead getting all we could never earn freely in Jesus, which cost him everything. We love getting mercy. We love that once we were sinners, but because of the love of God, he didn't give us what we deserve, but we're forgiven and we're given identity in Christ and inheritance. We love to get mercy, but do we love giving it as much as getting it? This is the challenge. The words of Jesus are so powerful in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the same measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are so proficient at pointing out the flaws in the political spectrum opposite of ours. But what if we started and said, Jesus, deal with my own heart. I have a tree in my face obstructing my vision. Sure, there might be a speck in my brother's eye and it would be nice to take it out, but I can't see, I'm blind because my judgment and my vision is impaired by the spirit of judgment and criticism. Mercy is the call of the believer to go to the cross and say, the same mercy I've been given, I wanna love for my neighbor. When you think about candidates in either of the political platforms, any of them, when you think of them, are your thoughts judgmental? 
Are your words judgmental or do you love mercy for them? When you think about them, do you see those candidates through the cross as the ones God loves? What floods your mind when you think about them? And have you loved mercy? Not just those candidates, what about those who vote or think differently for you? Have you given them mercy? Or is there judgment in our hearts? James 4.12 says, There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's love mercy so we can be shown mercy. The next one is those who share in the life of Christ are the pure in heart. They will see God. Jesus, through the whole sermon, is cleansing our hearts. He's going to cleanse our hearts and deal with anger. He's going to deal with insult. He's going to deal with anxiety. He's going to deal with greed. And he's going to ask us, is our heart pure? How will we see God or see the image of God in others if our heart is not cleansed? Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Have you found yourself angry on social media? How are you doing during the, uh, the, the political season in terms of debates? Do you find yourself reacting in anger and going beyond that? It says um, these powerful words here. Anyone who says to his brother, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. What kind of insults are coming out of our hearts in this time? What are the words that we're speaking. We'll get to that in a second. Has he cleansed our heart from anxiety? It says the Gentiles run after these things that cause anxiety. How is our heart doing in anxiety? What about greed? It says we cannot serve God and money. We have to search our economic motivations in this political landscape and what we decide. And Jesus says we'll know what's in our heart by what comes out of our mouth. Matthew 12, 34 through 37. For out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good out of the good things stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Now listen to these words. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words condemned. What is coming out of our mouth and into our thought, out of our thoughts is what's revealing our hearts. Jesus, cleanse our hearts in this season. Are our hearts pure from these things? Again, we will not be able to see God rightly or others in the image of God if our hearts are not pure. Those who share in the life of Christ are peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Are we committed to being peacemakers or partisans in this political season? We've asked this question many times, but the words of Jesus confront us. This is the opportunity to be matured in love and put love on, to put love above all and display the love of Jesus, the greatest gift to a watching world. Listen to these words. You have heard it said, Matthew 5, 43, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore 
must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect means to be made mature in love. To be a peacemaker is to bless those who are different than you or disagree with you. It's to love above all and not allow anything to divide us as the church. Is to even love our enemies or our political adversaries. It is to put Christ on, not retaliating, but going the extra mile in extravagant love. What is more important in this season? Being right or having reconciled relationships. Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift, go be reconciled to your brother or sister. Is there anyone at all we need to be reconciled to in love in this political season? Those who walk in these things specifically peacemakers, will be persecuted. Those who share in the life of Christ are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is tension in this season. But Nava, we have an opportunity to put Jesus on display. The five points we've talked about are recentering Jesus as our hope for human flourishing, his kingdom as our aim reclaiming our identity in Jesus, recommitting to love and humility like we've heard in the Sermon on the Mount. His words search us right now. Let the Holy Spirit search you. Reframing the narrative around Jesus in this complex moment so that we can represent Jesus to a watching world. They will know we are disciples by our love. We are asking the Holy Spirit right now to form us into his glory, from glory to glory, and fill us and change us into his image. Our prayer as we close this, will you pray with me? Search us and shape us, Holy Spirit, by your power. We wanna be a people of mature love, like Jesus in the middle of this season. We want to show the world by your power what it looks like to follow Jesus. Nava, we can walk forward in the way of Jesus, like Jesus. I bless you even now as we go forward to put him on display. Amen.